as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where's your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 42, which along with Psalm 43 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, July the 16th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at the book of Joshua. Today we're in chapter 6, the first 14 verses of that chapter, also continuing in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verses 26 to 35, and in uh, the epistle to the church at Rome, chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. So what we've got is the people have come across the Jordan. They have been circumcised. The the men have all been circumcised in order to renew the covenant, and then they have now um, also celebrated a Passover, the first Passover in the land, and now the time has come to begin the conquest of the land, beginning here at the city of Jericho. So Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. They've seen this this huge multitude of Israelites there. They've heard about them. They've heard all about them. They've heard all the things that God has done. And now the people of Jericho have barricaded themselves inside the city for protection. And the Lord said to Joshua, here's the battle plan. See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going round the city once. Thus shall you do for seven days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every one straight before him. That's the plan. Joshua must have had an enormous trust in the Lord to hear that plan and not say, well, huh. Well, he's seen the Jordan River parted. He's seen the Red Sea parted. He saw the things that God did in the land of Egypt. He saw all the provision that God made for them in the wilderness and how he provided protection for them during all that time. So he should have been kind of prepared for an odd battle plan to begin this work because he's already met the commander of the Lord's army. So is it really their actions that are going to cause the walls to fall flat, or is it their faith accompanied by their action? The way you show your faith is you act. And so that's exactly what they're called to do, is to say, trust me on this. I've got this taken care of. Now, Joshua's leadership to me is is absolutely amazing because first they've come into the land, they've crossed over the Jordan River, and the first thing that he does is to tell all these guys who are going to have to fight the battles, I need you to go ahead and get circumcised now so that we can renew the covenant and we're safe to enter the land as God's people. So he convinced all these people to get circumcised just after entering the land, gives them a few days to recover from that, and then they celebrate the Passover. And now here we go, and he says, okay, here's the plan. Here's the battle plan. We're just going to march around the city. We're not going to do anything except march around the city. Okay. So it's, it's he, what an incredible leader because he's, he's asking the people to believe these things. And so he goes to the priests and he says, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, go forward, march around the city and let the armed men pass on before the Ark of the Lord. So everybody, okay. 
Here we go. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the Lord, covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. So that as they walk around the city of Jericho, the, the ark is in the middle of the formation, and so you've got armed people in front, then the ark, and then armed people as the rear guard. And they're just walking around the city, and the priests are blowing these trumpets. Now, if you're inside the city, this has got to be the most unnerving thing in the world. And, and then so that they're doing this, and your assumption is is they're preparing to attack. They're announcing the, the assault on your city by blowing these ram's horns with all these armed people there. And then, nope. Once they do that, they go back out and camp. And so then they do this for six days. And Joshua commands the people, don't shout or make your voice heard. Neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So not only is this sort of this unnerving thing going on, but here you've got all these people in silence, except for the blowing of the ram's horns. And that's just, the main time of year when the ram's horn is blown is actually on Yom Kippur. And it's sort of God's, our voice calling to God's voice like at the mountain at Sinai. And so here, to, to blow it at this time, there, there are certain ways to blow it, by the way. So there's staccato bursts, there's the long, drawn-out note and all that, and, and that is to be the note of triumph when they finally go in and enter the city. But Joshua tells everybody there, just be quiet. Just walk. So he calls the ark of the Lord to circle the city going about at once, and they came into the camp and they spent the night in the camp. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, the priest took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord, walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. So they did for six days. I mean, can you imagine the conversation that's going on in the city of Jericho during this period of time? And the conversation that's going on outside the city of Jericho in the camp of the Israelites. Like, what are we doing? I don't get this. I do not get the plan. We have to assume that Joshua has told them what he intends to do. And and essentially what it is, is it's the announcement of the Lord's presence here. And the people of Jericho could have surrendered. They could have just said, nope, we'll surrender the city to you. But they didn't. They, they, they adopted a defensive posture. And so their hearts were hardened in the same way that... Um, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. They had other options. They didn't have to be barricaded in the city. They could have just surrendered, but they didn't. They did not do the one thing that they had the opportunity and the option of doing. So in the the, uh, gospel, remember yesterday, the the disciples went in to the certain man in the city of Jerusalem and and said, hey, the teacher is going to have Passover here. And so they've He's also then said, one of you is going to betray me. So now as they were eating, as they're attending at the feast, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So he's reinterpreting the symbols of the Passover. And so the body is, is reinterpreted to be the, the bread at the Passover. Wouldn't you think that, that, that his body would have actually been the lamb? Because that's what we actually see. And that's what John said. He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then in Revelation 5, what we see is a, a lamb before the throne looking as though it were slain. So, but, but bread 
is what Jesus says is his body. And he has told us before that he was the bread of life. And so this is my body is the, is the announcement that, that th- this life is in this bread. This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And remember that way back in Genesis, what we're told is the life of the thing is in the blood. And so they're not to eat things that have been strangled. And even that passes into the New Testament church as well, because in Acts 15, when the Jerusalem Council has to answer the question of of on what terms do we incorporate Gentiles into the covenant community, the, the answer to that, it includes don't eat things with blood in them because the life of the thing is in the blood. As long as there's blood in it, there's some sort of life there. But once the blood is gone, then, then so is the life of the thing. And the problem with drinking blood or eating animals with blood in it is, is that it's mixing two forms of life. It's mixing human life and that animal life. And so we avoid that very thing for that reason. But here, Jesus interprets the wine as his blood. So the very things that, it sounds like cannibalism and all this, but but it's the thing that's commanded not to do, to drink the blood. They're not drinking the blood of the sacrifice. The wine would have symbolized the blood and the life, but, but it wouldn't have been the blood. And so when Jesus says this, he, he's running things that are so counter to Jewish law when he says these things, that, that it's similar to what he says in John 6, when he tells people that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Here, Jesus is doing that very thing and said, this is what this is. It's the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so you're drinking Jesus's life. So he is the, you're taking his body and his blood. So when you do, you're taking the life of Christ into you in a mystical way. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. In other words, this isn't going to happen again. This is my life is about to end. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives where they were camping during the week so that they could fulfill the obligation to be within the environs of Jerusalem during the Passover. Jesus said to all them, you'll all fall away because of me this night. For it's written, I'll strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So they're they're still not really thinking that this is what's going to happen here. Even though Jesus has told them again and again what's going to happen. Here he's talking about after being raised up, I'll, I'll be with you in Galilee. Now they could have had confidence had they believed Jesus. That, that he would be raised up, right? They could have had the confidence to stand with him because they, they would have known that what can man do to me? And that's nothing because ultimately nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so my life is, is hidden with Christ. And then my life then is not limited by this life. You know, I will surely perish from the earth, but I will not die in that way. And these guys could have known this. And Jesus is talking about resurrection here. Did they have faith in what Jesus said? And the answer is no. And the proof is they ran away. The, the change happens in the book of Acts when they stand strong, when, they, when they're called before the Sanhedrin, in the case of Peter and John, in the case of, of Stephen, as he's about to be stoned. 
and and then you see these guys who who are like Paul particularly who who are unconcerned about the loss of their life because he can say things like uh, to live is Christ to die is gain. They don't have that attitude yet. The resurrection and the giving of the Holy Spirit changed everything. So here Peter answers, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Peter just wanted to be that guy. He, he, he wanted to be the tough guy. He wanted to be the strong guy. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I mean, Peter's bravado here, he wants to be that guy. He ultimately kind of will be that guy in some circumstances, but even then he continues to have some fear of the Jews, and that's why Paul has to rebuke him as a hypocrite because he acts certain ways when he's with the Jews and certain ways when he's not. But, but Peter does, in fact, die just as Jesus has died. And so, but, he, but he insisted on being crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified to die the death that Jesus died, that his had to be more ignominious even than that. And so it's, it's a beautiful thing, but we see that Jesus looks and knows, I'm going to be alone. As I go through this, I will be alone. And he'll be alone at one point for the first time ever. And that is when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the first time that he's ever felt alone. And the answer to that is because of the sins of people like me, because of John, because of Robert, because of and Marie, because of whoever, that's the reason Jesus was forsaken, in order that we might be forgiven, and that his blood might atone for those sins. And unless we eat his flesh and drink his blood, then we don't have his life in us. So communion becomes a manifesto of faith, because when we take communion, then do we recognize these truths about his body and his blood? In the as I said, with, with Romans, Paul's speaking about um, how do we live. If we accept all these things as true, then how do we live? And he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, that's a very difficult thing to hear, especially in, um, in times when, when things are run by people who, are, who, who, we can't, who don't even believe. They don't even believe in, in God at all. So how do we see that? Well, we see it by, by virtue of looking and saying that, that sovereign belongs to God and so that, that nothing happens that he doesn't allow. And so there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And, and that then gets extended by some rulers as what's known as the divine right of kings, which is to say, God put me in this position, not you. And, and because I am the king— then, then I'm subject only to God, and therefore I have the right to do anything I want, essentially, because I wouldn't be here were it not for God. So that's the divine right of kings. And so that's the way they misinterpret this, but it, but it doesn't give license to do evil things. And so there's been lots and lots of discussion down the centuries about what is a Christian's response to wicked authority, for instance. It, and we can look at the Hebrew midwives in... Um, in Egypt, who refused to abort babies of the Hebrew women as they were told to do by um, by the Pharaoh. And what we see is, is that God blessed them with families of their own because they were disobedient to the rulers of the day. 
So what does it mean to be subject to the governing authorities? What does it mean to submit ourselves to wicked authority? And, and we see, even in the life of Jesus, we see the family leave Bethlehem to leave the land completely and go to Egypt for a period of time because of a similar edict against children in Bethlehem. And so we see that they fled that wicked authority. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was one of the great Lutheran theologians of the 20th century, um, did two things in contravention of being subject to the authorities. First, he had an outlaw seminary. And so he kept that seminary until the Nazis shut it down, but also he joined the plot to kill Hitler because he became convinced that the wickedness had to end. didn't mean that he didn't have faith in God, but it did mean he had an opportunity to do something should he take it. And so it's, it's always a balancing act about how we respond to governmental authorities. He says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God's appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Now, the question obviously comes up in this, where, where Paul's saying this, is, is that would you have uh, volunteered or, or even uh, served um, under conscription as uh, um, someone at a, at a Nazi death camp, let's say, or um, in Russia or China when people were being put to death? What would, what would the Christian response to that be? Well, it certainly wouldn't be to cooperate with evil. And that's something that we do always have to consider is, is this thing evil? And then we have a response to make to evil. We need to stand up to evil and name it for what it is and refuse to participate in it. He says, would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what's good and you'll receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. Now, Jesus tells us that, that we're going to be persecuted for doing those things, that, that what the world thinks is good is not necessarily what we understand to be good. He said, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he who do, he does not bear the sword in vain. In other words, the, the punishment that will fall on you for doing wrong it is actually legitimate. He's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, this paying of taxes was not an issue within the church. Necessarily, it was an issue within the um, within uh, Judaism because they didn't recognize the authority of the state, a non-Jewish state, to tax. So they they didn't recognize that, and that's the reason that the person comes and asks G, uh, Peter if Jesus pays the temple tax. It's the reason that people come and ask Jesus, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus has to hold up the coin and look at it and said, whose head's on that? Whose inscription's on it? And Well, it's, it's Caesar's. Well, then it belongs to Caesar. Give it back to him. And, the, and then give to God what belongs to God. And the presumption there is you'll understand that you bear the likeness and the image of God. Therefore, your life belongs to him. And so Paul says, you know, it's okay to pay taxes, which would have been kind of a, a move in a different direction in some cases for him, uh, potentially at least, because there were two schools of thought that were, that were um, primary in, uh, in Jerusalem at that time. And one, was, one would take kind of a position that was lighter than the other, and so it depends on which school that it came from as to whether or not he would agree that it was wrong or right to pay taxes to Caesar. But here he says, no, it's, it's the right thing to do. He's recognizing the authority of these rulers because he do, it's, it's not like Judaism. 
it's it's the god's kingdom transcends the kingdoms of earth so there's not a quote god kingdom on earth other than the church and so he recognizes that he that that we live in two kingdoms simultaneously we live in the kingdom of god if we're christians while at the same time living in the kingdom of the world and so how do we relate as christians living in the kingdom of god to the kingdom of the world and what he's saying is to be good citizens if you if you boil all this down that's what it comes down to is be good citizens he says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So Paul says, be good citizens. Understand the debts that you have, and the debt has to do with things like taxes and revenue. In other words, you pay for what you buy. Uh, respect and honor. All those things kind of go together. In what Paul's saying is, is, is he's saying submit yourself or subject yourself to the governing authorities. He's he's not encouraging you to follow any edict. If it's evil, if it contravenes God's will, then don't do it. There'd be no way Paul would say it's okay to do that. But what he says is, is that be good citizens. And it fits in with the live peaceably with others as far as it lies in you. You know, but there comes a time when when we have to rebel and we have to say no to those kinds of authorities. And so but Paul assumes or presumes here that Roman edicts will be more or less um, non, not evil at any rate. But, but we, we recognize that we do live in these two kingdoms, that we have been transferred into the kingdom of God through our faith in Jesus Christ, faith in his blood, and the receiving of that forgiveness. We've been transferred from death into life, but we still live on this earth. And while we do, we need to live as Jesus did as peaceably as he could with all. But at the same time, the person to whom he was ultimately responsible was the Father. And that's the way we need to live, too, and we need to navigate life in that way. And it requires a lot of prayer, and it requires a lot of understanding to be able to do that. It requires wisdom. And it's wisdom that we typically can't get just on our own. It's important that we understand God's plan in the same way that Joshua understood it, which is to say it's God's plan, therefore it must be good and it must be right, and I should follow it.